Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, today is our big Decade Ender show. Yes, it is. One. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely been one. Yeah. Um, that, that much we can confirm. Ten years have definitely passed. Um, we'll be going over lots of different things um, that have changed, that happened in the intervening years. But I wanted to ask you guys... Uh, you know, like you say, this was a formative time in our lives. What yeah. were you guys doing in 2009? I graduated from college in 2009. I was eating a lot of um, dollar slices of pizza. Uh, Congratulations I was to you. Living in an extremely, some would say, troublingly cheap New York City apartment. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, and getting by. Nice. I, I love. Um, I understand the spirit of this question, Alex, but it really just throws into sharp relief the differences in our ages here in this oh, podcast Oh, well, I don't mean room. to make you tell on yourself That's or anything. That's fine. 2009, I was working at uh, Bloomberg B&A back yeah. then. So I was already done with college and law school. And law school. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah, working there. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I was still a reporter back then in look 2009. Look at you. Though. I was, and now I look was at you. Workplace immigration report back then. Oh, nice. very good. Yeah. I uh, it was it was dark times for your boy in 2009. I was I was a year out of college. I'm a year older than Bill, and I was living at my mom's house, writing for the local sports desk, thinking about joining the Navy. Maybe I would say I that, wasn't finding any job. That's <laughs> troublingly cheap rent, just in a different way. Definitely, yeah, fully subsidized by mom. I'm glad to see that we've all come up a lot in the world. Yeah, in, in the have. intervening it's good. We're ten thriving. years, it's good to know. Uh, we have a good we have a good sort of decade setting show here. We're going to do a little time capsule looking at 2009 versus 2019, sort of how we entered and how we exited. Um, we're going to look at after that. We're going to do some of the biggest trends, you know, the big narratives that that everyone is sort of looking back and seeing now that we're making a coherent picture of the decade. Yeah. Um, then we're going to do some of the biggest trials and the biggest Supreme Court cases and um, run through, you know, the, all the the sort of substantive legal stuff that you had you have to know when you're looking back at the decade. Yeah. And we have so much to get to that we are going to dive right into the numbers. Yeah, Alex, yeah we really stats. should. Uh, yeah, this little, I just uh, pulled together a little uh, time capsule for us, going over some, like I say, some facts and figures. Um, one thing to know is that in 2009, uh, law firms were making a lot of money. In 2019, some of those very same law firms continued to make money. No let's, way. Let's, let's go to the... Uh, these are the rankings. I did top five uh, gross revenue, according to AmLaw. From 2009, five to one, uh, you got Sidley Austin, Jones Day, Latham & Watkins, Baker McKenzie, and Skadden at the top. So mm-hmm. that was five to one, 2009. Uh, fast forward to 2019, uh, you got Skadden. Jumped down from one to five. Tough for them. Skadden, DLA Piper, Baker McKenzie, Latham and Watkins, and Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, just a little fun, just a little context here. Skadden was the top gross revenue earner in 2009 with $2.2 billion. Uh, in 2019, this year, that wouldn't crack the top five because Skadden uh, at number five uh, was $2.6 billion this year. So let's give them all a hand. Uh, you they, guys are doing great. Yeah. We're so thrilled for you. Very much so. Uh, running around the industry a little bit, according to the American Bar Association, there were 1.18 million lawyers working for U.S.-based firms in 2009. Uh, that number climbed 14% to 1.352 million in 2019. Um, and uh, let's not forget about the students. Uh, the U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah. I, when we were, had production meetings, I predicted that the the top five law schools would probably be unchanged. Was I right? Uh, you're pretty close. Yeah. So this is from U.S. News and World Report, who does a uh, they they do a fulsome ranking every year. Again, for time's sake, I have trimmed it to the top five. 2009, five to one top law schools: NYU, Columbia, Stanford, Harvard, and Yale. 
2019, NYU, Columbia, University of Chicago, Harvard, and Yale. Wow. Uh, Yale was number Tri-city. one. Tri-City. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm very, very proud of them. Uh, Yale was number one every year this decade, uh, and Harvard was uh, number two, I believe, every year. Uh, this is the first year, actually, 2019 is the first year that Stanford is not in the top five at all. Hmm. They had been uh, a fixture of the top five. They are out now. They have to clearly get their act together <laughs> um, to take us out. Um, no offense to anybody who went to Stanford. In any case, uh, I did also, I thought it would be instructive to take a look at the composition of the Supreme Court. So at the end of 2009, um, I, I remember this incorrectly, by the way. I thought that, that uh, Sonia Sotomayor was appointed in the 2010s, but she was in 2009. Hmm. So at the end of 2009, we had John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, Anthony Kennedy, John Paul Stevens, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Sonia Sotomayor. Over the course of the next decade, we swapped out three of those justices, uh, one appointed by Barack Obama when he tapped former Solicitor General Elena Kagan to replace the retiring ju- uh, Justice Stevens. Uh, Kagan, uh, one of the handful of, I believe there's like nine or so justices who were never a judge before. She was yeah. a dean of Harvard Law School and hmm. then the Solicitor General. I forgot about that. And then two, of course, were appointed by Donald Trump, who nominated Neil Gorsuch from the Tenth Circuit to fill the seat left vacant by the death of Antonin Scalia. And then, of course, last year, Brett Kavanaugh of the D.C. Circuit, who we'll be talking about later, uh, took the seat vacated by his former boss, Anthony Kennedy, uh, like I said, in 2018. Um, Probably would also be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the sort of the high court was not without a little bit of drama about empty seats in 2016 after Scalia died. There was a, a Obama-nominated Merrick Garland mm-hmm. uh, from the D.C. Circuit. There was a long sort of period of inactivity by the Senate. Uh, Garland never even got a hearing, uh, but that's where we are now. Uh, still with nine. We swapped out three over the years, and uh, yeah, so... It's a great little snapshot. I feel I, like... I, uh, I, I thought so. That'll, that'll get us oriented a I little bit. I like we're all caught up. Yeah. Let's just... Call the show now. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Uh, Anything else? No, we covered everything, I think. Uh, Yeah. Well, I think this is a nice segue to us talking about some of the big legal trends that we saw over the decade, Uh, this whole idea of how the the legal industry entered the decade and and now how they're leaving it. Because the first thing that we want to talk about is the presence, the the problem of the recession that started very late in the end of uh, last decade. And... Much of the defining sort of thing of the first few years of this decade for the whole country, but in particular, the the legal industry was trying to find ways to sort of claw our way back to to recovery from that. I'm um, very familiar. I don't know if you heard at the beginning of the show, I was unemployed. So <laughs> yeah. I am right there with you. Yeah, it was a real <laughs> shadow over how this decade started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the defining thing here is that, you know, the firm, that the industry really has at this point seemingly rebounded fully from it, but there are some things that, that appear to have been more structural or deeper changes that, that were caused by it. Um, yeah, so so let's let's break it down a little bit. So the we all remember the economy tanked in the fall of 2008, September and October of 2008. Um, the impact on firms was pretty immediate. There were huge layoffs, all sorts of belt tightening measures. Um, things sort of culminated symbolically in February of 2009, um, a day that was termed Bloody Thursday, when mm-hmm. eight of the country's uh, big firms, the big law firms. Uh, 
announced on a single day 748 layoffs, including 320 lawyers and 428 support staff members. Yes. So um, it, we saw you saw big firms like Heller Ehrman go down. Uh, Dewey LaBeouf uh, and other firms sustained a lot of critical damage that we would later then see sort of manifest itself yeah. later. Yeah, they're um, like parallels to what was going on in the finance industry. A lot exactly. of the big mortgage houses go under and all that. Um, yeah. Starting salaries for associates tanked. They dropped from an average of 149000 in 2009 to 93000 by 2011. Yeah. Um, uh, employment of graduates just out of law school plummeted as well. So we really entered in 2010, uh, really limping into into the decade. And as we've come along, things some things have, have rebounded. Um, the we, we all remember that the economy started to rebound, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, and it has obviously done very well of late. And the, the legal insurance has really um, sort of followed that, that track. Um, Law firm graduate employment rates are back to pre-recession levels. Um, they're they're at about seventy percent, at least at the very very top top elite law firms. Um, associate pay scale and bonuses are back to record levels. I saw one report that, you know, that one hundred ninety thousand is 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 the new normal at some of these really really top tier wow. firms. Um, we've seen bonuses have been very big this mm-hmm. this year at those firms. Um, uh, on the firm level and the, the sort of the institutions themselves, um, things are pretty good. Uh, over 2018, revenue at the AmLaw 100 grew at 8%, which is a lot higher than you had seen in some of the middle years of the decade, um, and hit a uh, a record of $98.7 billion total yeah. revenue for the AmLaw 100, the 100 biggest firms in the country. Well, that all sounds great. And you said that things had largely rebounded, but you also hinted that we maybe saw some structural changes that stuck around that were a result of the recession. Yeah. And I think um, people in any industry can sort of understand this, that uh, there were, you know, there were, there were measures taken by companies uh, that, that, that they saw, and then they said, well, why would we go back to the way we had been operating? And right. there were lasting damages on employees who saw their pay decrease, they saw their job opportunities evaporate, and that sort of has a long, that casts a long shadow even after the recession itself ends. Um, I thought there, there was an interesting story that we ran in 2016 um, that right as the economy was starting to roar back, um, that there was this huge uh, gap that there was this huge shortage of mid-level, really experienced associates because it was mm-hmm. this delay. It was this five-year yeah, delay. Yeah, people couldn't get jobs or they got laid off immediately. Exactly. So, yeah. so you saw this really heated uh, there was job a disruption. market. For, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a whole class of associates that didn't really exist in the way that it would have <laughs> in a normal year. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know I mentioned earlier about the uh, the the top earning law firms have really rebounded to form, but um, we've seen maybe a little bit of a segmentation that um, you know the average starting associate pay has remained far below where it was pre-recession when you get outside that sort of top okay. upper upper echelon, um, and the overall median starting pay for lawyers you know at looking outside of the firm context at all um, has never really reco- recovered from the recession in. It was uh, eighty-two thousand uh, dollars a year when the recession hit, and it's um, it was seventy thousand at the end of two thousand seventeen. So yeah. that's the average just starting pay for for uh, for 
lawyers in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we talk about the cost of undergraduate, but also the talk of the, the cost of legal education is astronomical. And that it hasn't sure gone is. down as yeah. if anything, it's gone up over the over. The, it's the, definitely gone up because I think about how much debt I took on to yeah. get through law school and thought it was so terrible at the time. But I read some of these stories now about the amount of t- the cost of tuition per year and it's so much higher than when I was in law school. Well, and so. I and I think that that's an important thing to note only because it doesn't we don't want to sound like we're coming with, like we have a tin ear about like, you know, that oh what a hardship that people are only yeah, making sure. 100 instead of 150. But when you're coming out with this $300,000 in debt yes. and you expected to make x amount of money, it it is a big deal when when well, those kind of Well, and also when you pair it with the stat you just said which, you know, not everyone is making those right. big law starting salaries. A lot of people are are using their law degrees in other ways. And maybe are more in this um, this uh, middle range that you were talking about. Yeah. It's really hard to live in a major city, yeah. make that kind of money, and also pay these huge student loan bills. So perhaps as a result of that, uh, over the back half of the decade, we've seen the graduating classes coming out of law schools going down every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it reached a peak in 2013, which perhaps was people, you know, the economy tanked and a bunch of undergraduates sort of punted on the job market and went to law school. But from 2013, when we saw a real peak, it has gone down a lot ever since. So, um, uh, and the, the other one real big thing that we've seen as a lasting impact of of the recession is um, the way that firms are structured when it comes to uh, support staff and you know overall employees and the amount of money that they spend. Um, that hasn't really recovered at all. It's, I think it's up for debate whether or not the the use of technology, the use of outside vendors, all like legal services companies, all that stuff was sort of going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. But you know this this generational recession certainly kickstarted that, and it's 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 changed the industry dramatically over the over the course of the decade. And that I think you can really say was something that the recession uh, superheated. The next sort of big news trend cultural trend that we want to talk about it has to do with a gentleman named Donald Trump. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Donald Trump. Never heard of him. Uh, so heard yeah. Of him every day. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really no getting around it. Like, as a first as a candidate for office and then as the commander in chief now, you know, basically the entire back half of the decade has sort of, you know, belonged to Trump in terms of like, like I said, cultural awareness and, you know, all all news just sort of flowing from the policies of the Trump White House and the mm-hmm. reverberations that has. Um, and obviously what we're talking about here is the the sort of the sheer volume and the intensity of the litigation that has sort of sprung up in Trump world over the last half of the decade. Um, you know, to put it very to just kind of make a thesis statement, you know, Trump uh, and those and in his orbit have made very frequent use of the legal system in ways that are unconventional. Uh, and this is, you know, ranging, everything ranging from, you know, lawsuits over his actual policies that he's, you know, rolled out as president yeah. to his personal conduct and, you know, the tendrils of his uh, his business empire before he was in politics. And uh, there's there's been no shortage of, uh, of things to discuss. I think that's why it's really a trend that there's just such a volume because you always see administrations yeah. facing lawsuits over various policies, but you don't often see presidents having um, these personal lawsuits going on at the same time. We have um, things that, are, like you said, seem more intense in yeah. some respects. So to me, it's because it's such a deluge that it rises to the level of being 
just a big part of what we'll remember from the decade. Yeah, Bill and I were talking about how to sort of go at this, and we we, we basically had said the same thing. It was like it's very normal to get your policies challenged, but like the the sort of the chaotic nature of the way these policies are rolled out, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and the the the, the swiftness of the challenges. Yeah, um, it's very interesting. So where to begin? Uh, we've all heard of the Mueller investigation. Of course, this was uh, former FBI director Robert Mueller was appointed as special counsel in 2017 to investigate Russian interference in the presidential election in 2016. Uh, that ran its course for about two years. And ultimately, Trump was not you know, sort of formally accused of any wrongdoing mm-hmm. regarding Russia or obstruction of justice. Um, but obviously, the sort of lasting legacy of that is that a number of people in Trump's orbit uh, were uh, brought up on charges, and some of them are serving prison sentences right. now. This includes former campaign uh, chairman uh, Paul Manafort, um, uh, Trump's sort of longtime uh, f- friend and Republican political operative Roger Stone, yeah. uh, various people in the big law world were pulled into this. Gregory Craig had a trial. He was acquitted, of course, but he got pulled into this. This was Mueller adjacent. So that's very interesting, and most of these things related to Financial crimes, lying to investigators about the probe yeah. that was going on. You didn't see a lot of – there were Russian officials who were charged and I think a one or two are facing charges. But many of these people will never set foot in the United States. And so that was really the sort of – that loomed over the first two years of the Trump presidency mm-hmm. as this sort of like all-encompassing legal morass that like yeah. sort of took down a lot of different people. Um, and then, of course – Somewhat related to this, you, you will we will see some overlap here in some of there these. are a lot of Venn diagrams. In yes, all this. Yeah. Uh, which we will try to keep this as clean as possible for the purposes of these discussions. But then, of course, there were the hush money payments to uh, adult film star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal. That came to light from uh, reporting in the Wall Street Journal at the beginning of 2018. Um, and again, much like in the Mueller investigation, Trump himself um, has. Uh, Uh, mostly escaped formal legal rebuke there. Uh, But I think the lasting legacy of that is probably the downfall of Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, Mm -hmm. who personally facilitated the payments to these women. um, And then uh, was eventually, then that was found to be a, a violation of campaign finance laws. These are in-kind donations to the Trump campaign. They were made sort of in the run up to the 2016 election. And really, uh, you know, Cohen sort of became this, I don't know, depending on who you ask, a tragic or tragic comic type yeah. of figure. He had a quote in like a Vanity Fair story shortly after Trump took office that was like, you know, I would take a bullet for the president. And he was still working as a personal attorney, even when he was in the White House. And so we go from that kind of loyalty to him sort of openly weeping in Manhattan court uh, when he was sent away, he's serving a uh, three-year prison term. Yeah, I mean, so that covers a lot of sort of the scandals sort of just surrounding the administration and and the people in it but Mm -hmm. we also like we alluded to before had a bunch of policies that were directly challenged in court and that's also a whole raft of interesting things to talk about yeah there's been a lot of them i don't mean to give short shrift to anything here but in the in the in the interest of brevity probably the most uh interesting area of this was um on immigration policies definitely you you know we, we you've covered this before amber and we have talked about this many times on the show but uh, we all recall the sort of, I would say, we're not going to talk about it later in the show, but sort of the, the, the defining Supreme Court opinion of the Trump era is, I think, uh, Hawaii v. Trump and the travel ban. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, because it truly set out 
um, how much power does the executive and the president have to enact policies, um, even if there's some some signals or some arguments mm-hmm. that they may not be for the purposes uh, that the president says they are. So. Yes. Um, so, of course, the, the Supreme Court upheld a version of that travel ban uh, that remains in place. Uh, they will soon hand down a ruling on DACA, which is, you know, uh, Immigrants who came here as children, uh, the Trump administration got rid of the program that is uh, being heard at the Supreme Court right now. There were also just numerous uh, litigation battles over, uh, we were talked about the citizenship question on the sure. census, funding for the border wall, and of course the family separation policy yeah. is still being Yeah, I feel like we went through day. a w- real period, especially like you're talking about with immigration, where it was um, the administration would do something and then immediately that day, the next day, a lawsuit would be filed. Well, it was that, like clockwork. Yeah, and I, I think that's what... When we were planning the show, that was part of what seemed so outside the norm of just of of you know every every administration has their actions challenged in court, but the the intervention and the emergency intervention of the courts so often in these cases uh, seems seemed like it really was something that stood out. Especially when you consider the area of the law. I mean, it, a, a lot of areas of law are complex, and when emergency injunctions come down, it's very confusing. I mean, this is literally about the movement of people who are yeah. caught up sort of in, you know, different channels of the U.S. immigration system it has uh, immense implications. And like I say, a lot of that is still being litigated to this day. So we've talked a little bit about the the lawsuits against Trump the person and Trump the president, the administration, but there's... there the. Some of the stuff dealing with his his business entanglements, right? It's yeah. it, it sort of like I feel like that overlaps those two. Yeah, he was very uh, he was a very unique person to seek the office in that regard. There have been people who have worked in business and then went into politics. It's not some earth shattering thing. But when you consider the, the sort of scope of his business celebrity and all the different properties he has all around the world, it's given rise to a lot of interesting lawsuits. Um, basically. You know, they they allege different things, but they all basically allege that Trump is using the power of the office to enrich his business interests, um, which are still operating. Um, This has basically been positioned as a violation of the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. Um, And there are lots of those um, cases that are working their way through. The most, the sort of ripest of those is a challenge from the District of Columbia and the state of Maryland who are litigating about uh, Trump's uh, purchase, uh, or well, I mean, not about the purchase, but about the fact that he does own the Trump International Hotel, which is steps away from the White House. Mm -hmm. Many foreign dignitaries have come through Washington. They've stayed there. They are raising arguments about like, they, it's even if he's not actively courting them, you can see how they might feel an incentive to want to stay there to curry favor with the yeah. president. Right. Um, and this has uh, very in, this poses very interesting legal questions, mostly because um, the emoluments clause has never really been explored by yeah it's like the yeah. it's like the third amendment yeah it's it, like we're, it's, it's, it's the it's, part of the constitution I learned about this decade yeah that's a good that's a good yeah, way to point it a, like I say uh, the, the 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 ripest of these is before the. Um, uh, the Fourth Circuit threw out one of these emoluments challenges, and now it's being heard on Bonk by the full panel. And uh, there was a, I'm paraphrasing, but there was a quote from one of the judges who was like, we're just up here winging it. Like, we don't, <laughs> like, no, like, this is uncharted territory. Yeah. They, that was like a direct quote from, these are some of the most right. foremost legal minds in the in the country. So, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's the type of thing that the, the reason it's never been tried before is because there's never been a person like this who's held the office. Um, and I think the last uh, thing to talk about is one that's bubbled up quite recently, and that is as as various bodies try to investigate Trump and find out uh, specifically about uh, some of his financial past, 
Um, the administration has been very aggressive in looking to block subpoenas by these investigative bodies. Um, and there are actually three, uh, just the other day, there were three cases that were taken up to the Supreme Court to talk yeah. about challenges. And these are, uh, there's basically two cases that involve a congressional committee that are investigating Trump, and then one by Manhattan DA Cy Vance, who is, um, and all of these involve subpoenas to um, either, uh, there's there's the accounting firm Mazars USA, Capital One and Deutsche Bank. These mm-hmm. are creditors and accounting firms that have done business with Trump. And basically, the the assertion by the White House is that the sort of immunity from criminal prosecution extends, you know, not only personally to Trump, but to subpoenas that are served to third parties relating to information prior to the time he became president. So this is obviously a very creative, uh, you know, use of that doctrine. And it's failed uh, at basically every level. And now it will rise to the Supreme Court. Um, so yeah, uh, Trump. So we, for, know, me, <laughs> for me, the big takeaway here is that so many of these things are um, Trump's uh, administration and his own actions are creating a whole body of case law that just didn't exist before this decade. Yeah, yeah posing unique problems that, that the courts feel that they have to jump into. So in thinking about this, I know we were all talking about the kind of stuff that we would remember 20 or 30 years from now. Mm -hmm. And the last one I want us to talk about is the Me Too movement. I think it's so important over this decade and um, it's really going to have lasting impacts. So this is what came out of the exposure of what happened with Harvey Weinstein and how he'd been sexually um, harassing and abusing many people. That all came out in October 2017. So the Me Too movement started as a social justice movement to draw attention to those issues. And it's really had tendrils that have spread far beyond just sort of that started in a, in a, a media sense. Um, it was like a litmus test for like many industries, it right? Was. Like it stretched into so many areas of the culture and the legal industry yeah. is no exception. Yeah, and I think it also expanded beyond just calling out sexual assault and harassment and yeah. also into just sort of this broader look at how women are faring in our culture, how they're faring in the workplace, um, issues of inequality. So it sweeps in just a lot going on. And I know it's a little weird in a legal show to focus on Me Too because it does touch so many aspects of our society. But I wanted to have us drill down a little bit on how Me Too has actually impacted the law itself and the profession. Sure. So I picked sort of three buckets for what I uh, what I thought the impacts were. The first one's a little obvious, I think, but there have been a lot of suits directed at law firms. Mm-hmm. So we've seen tons of allegations spring up. Um, like you were saying, Alex, in, in the media is where it all started, in entertainment industries, you saw all sorts of high-powered and, and well-known men get um, hit with allegations of this nature and, and lawsuits. But it also law firms, they were not immune to the same kind of stuff. So we saw big firms like DLA Piper, Denton's, Ogletree, the list could go on and on, um, where they faced sexual harassment suits by employees. Mm-hmm. Some of what was really interesting about this is that it seemed like a veil had come down on not just the suits being filed, but people talking about them. Yeah. Um, And a lot of the lawsuits sort of mirrored this language about bro culture at the top of law firms, about men devaluing women, um, not just in terms of harassing them, although many allegations were that and some of them were quite startling, but also just 
pay inequality took yeah. center stage. There were lots of we we on our own show have talked a lot about how certain structures within law firms keep pay sort of hidden and secret, so then women find out much later that they're being far undervalued yeah. compared to their male counterparts. And I think without the Me Too movement, we wouldn't have seen as much of that out in the open. Well, it's like I think uh, something you said earlier in your intro that it it really felt like it changed the conversation, or it, like it started a conversation, or it gave people a vocab to to yeah. voice these these things in a way that um, you know even beyond any of the specific instances that it really it made that something part of the consciousness that perhaps leads to more people talking about it and then and then really bringing their their um, complaints into a legal venue and that also ties into the next sort of two buckets that are kind of related that I want to talk about one is how the law itself is changing or at least discussions about it changing in light of these kind of lawsuits about sexual harassment um, as me too took hold you saw more and more attorneys and judges, questioning how the law itself could handle these allegations. And one common complaint that you saw a lot is that many of these high-powered men would settle with women and have them sign non-disclosure agreements, Mm -hmm. and then that actually protected them and allowed them to continue predator-style behavior because no one could talk about it and no one knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. So you've seen a lot of pushback in the legal community about not allowing those kinds of provisions in settlements that address these types of issues. So that's one thing that I think we're going to continue to see movement and change on what's allowed and what sort of the social ills that can come from constructs in the way we handle these legal cases and the settlements that come out of them. That's what made it so interesting to look at it in the legal realm, because this is a this is an area where people are demanding legal recourse. And sure. so it was interesting to watch this sort of like institution grapple with this very basic question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last one is similar, but I wanted to call it out as its own thing because it's, it's a little bit different. And that's um, a pushback about arbitration, uh, mandatory arbitration packs in employment contracts. So this all sort of ties into the bigger picture of one of the big things that's come out of Me Too is the ending of secrecy around this being a problem, around women talking about it with one another and with uh, and, and men knowing that it goes on. And part of ending that secrecy is not having everything just pushed to private arbitration. Many say that they want their day in court so that they can be fully heard and that it's on the record and then everyone can see it. So we saw a really interesting movement from a group of Harvard Law students. They started an activist group that was pushing big law firms to eliminate mandatory arbitration clauses from employment contracts. Um, they had a lot of success. I mean, right off the bat, they got some big firms to drop those for summer associates and then later for actual, you know, all the employees at firms. Um, and they continue to push on that. I think that it's a really interesting leverage point. I think we've talked about this in the show before where a group came in, saw that this was a problem, and they had the power because they were from elite law firms. So, yeah. I mean, elite law schools, yes. excuse me. So the firms, of course, want to hire them. So they do have that leverage point to say, We'll just work somewhere else that mm-hmm. isn't going to make us sign an arbitration uh, agreement. Yeah. And, and if anything happens to us, we would have to take it there. We want to be able to exercise our rights in court. And I can't really think of like other industries where that applies, where that kind of reverse dynamic is applicable. I mean, I suppose it could happen in finance or some sure. other things like that. But I like think where it's got to be the... limited, right? It's got to be somewhere where the talent is so sought after mm-hmm. that they have that power. Yeah. Next, we wanted to discuss the trial of the decade, 
and this presented something of a quandary, uh, you know, in the uh, in the pro se office. So we were talking about how to discuss the segment, the the kinds of trials that get trial of the century or trial of the decade in this case designations aren't always the kinds of proceedings that we cover at Law 360, you know, beat for beat. They tend to involve violent crimes or celebrities or things like that. So we're going to kind of do one from column A, one from column B. There was a very, there was very, seemed like a very clear choice for the trial of the decade that drew the most attention, um, you know, nationwide, worldwide, which we'll talk about in a second. And then we'll do one that sort of really is up your alley if you're a corporate lawyer and we're, we're paying attention to sort of high stakes trials for the last 10 years. And Bill, I think you want to get us started. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very... Uh very clear idea of what we're trying to do here. The 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 first one that we're going to talk about is the um, the 2013 murder trial of George Zimmerman um, following his shooting of a 17 year old African American high school student named Trayvon Martin. Yeah, um, we wanted to hit on this one because, as Alex said, it probably is the the trial that that drew you know the most attention in the decade. But it really, um, I think, it really touched on a number of big issues, whether that's race or guns or social media that that I think now when we're starting to look back and try to find a coherent picture of the decade, um, th- those are really some of the defining issues. Without a doubt. Yeah. So um, we'll do a quick catch up. Uh, Zimmerman was a 28-year-old man living in Florida. Um, and on the night of February 26, 2012, he shot and killed Martin. Uh, Martin was visiting relatives at a Florida gated community where Zimmerman lived. Zimmerman was a neighborhood watch member. Um, so he, Zimmerman saw Martin in the neighborhood, um, believed that he posed a threat or was suspicious, um, called the police to report this, pursued Martin, got into a physical altercation with him and then, um, shot him claiming that it was self-defense that, that, uh, that Martin had, had attacked him. Uh, the shooting provoked public outrage, uh, there were, you know, with sort of the accusation that that you would assume that this was a racially motivated killing of a of a young unarmed black person. Um, uh, the, the President Obama famously weighed in on the situation, uh, saying, quote, if I had a son, he would have looked a lot like Trayvon. Um, NBA players donned hoodies before a game as a form of protest because uh, Trayvon Martin had been wearing a hoodie when the um, when the incident happened. Uh so it was just really a situation that it it, it galvanized a lot of um, a lot of viewers and it and it raised these big issues of the use of violence and um, the use of violence, particularly involving uh, against a black person. Um, but we did get to a trial in this one, yeah. so let's talk about the trial itself. So in in April, uh, about two months after the shooting, um, Zimmerman was charged with second degree murder. Um, there was obviously all sorts of pretrial proceedings that went on uh, over the, the, the course of the next year. But in June of 2013, uh, we finally went to trial in a, in a Florida courtroom. Um, the trial went for about three weeks of testimony, um, but it, it was pretty notably short on um, exact details of what had happened that night, that um, there were no witnesses to the shooting. There wasn't a whole lot of, in terms of the things that a prosecutor would look for right. and that, that that they want to, to present that case. Um, also, a thing that was discussed a lot at the time was this, the presence of Florida's uh, self-defense law or stand your ground law, yeah, which created, you know, I just mentioned that there, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence for prosecutors to work with. Um, the bar was raised even higher by this stand your ground law, which right. basically said that the prosecutors had to 
you know, it was on them to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt that Zimmerman hadn't, uh, you know, acted in self-defense. Yeah, because you would think in the absence, I mean, if you're just looking at it as a, as a novice, in the absence of firsthand evidence, we know the facts enough to know that's, that, you know, one guy shot another guy and the guy who got shot didn't have a gun. Right. So it's like, well, you know, this raises questions about self-defense, but the, the presence of this stay-in-your-ground law was really a game-changer in that regard. Yeah, and, you know, so it... it, it the, the trial went on, and, and uh, on July 13th, 2013, um, the verdict rendered a not guilty verdict on all counts against Zimmerman. Yeah, and I mean, that obviously um, sparked a whole other wave of uh, reaction to what had happened there and whether or not justice was properly meted out. Yeah, yeah I mean, it wasn't some of the... You know, it, there, it wasn't a violent protest in the streets. There were some uh, physical protests after this. But I think what's really interesting to, to talk about is some of the social media reaction because yeah. this was 2013. Facebook existed, Twitter existed, but um, this was really one of the one of the first times that we saw a concerted effort of advocacy and response to to something like this via social media and. Um, the the night of the verdict, uh, the the hashtag started circulating on social media. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and um, uh, many people will have heard that that before, and um, that's because eventually that would grow into this sort of umbrella term for a movement aimed at stopping uh, violence and and systemic sort of society wide racism against black people. Um, uh, it would it would become even more prominent a year later during the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, and um, it's it's you know it's it's a movement that 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 still exists to this day and still is heavily in the conversation. So you can track that back to um, to this trial, and so the trial was it, it was itself a very big deal, but um, the reverberations of it are still going to this day. That trial was hugely important, um, but now we're going to pivot. It's a bit of a sharp. Uh, change of tone here yeah. to one that's just about the business world. Yeah. But it, too, is a hugely important trial um, because you don't get much bigger than tech giants Apple and Samsung battling over patents that are part of ubiquitous smartphones that everyone owns. It was the legal version. It, it was the formal big law, you know, corporate law version of why are you why are you green bubbling my phone right now? This is like so annoying. Uh, no, it's far it's far more important than that. Yeah. So this one um, it was a dispute that lasted seven years. It started in 2011, so it's actually perfect for this decade show because it spanned the majority of this decade. Um, Apple sued Samsung over what they're called design patents, and that covers things that are related to the appearance of the phone. So it's stuff like the rounded corners, the rim on the front of the face of the iPhone, and also that sort of iconic like grid layout of how the yeah. um, things appear on the home on screen. the menu. Yeah, yeah I mean it's it's so. I think I think this this case really resonated so much with people because you know everyone will remember the iPhone came out first and then this other phone came out that did look a lot like it. Sure and, did. Uh, so. That was Apple's argument yeah. right there. Um, On a personal note, also, this was like, this case was like finishing school for like Law 360 reporters when you're reporting on patents. Because <laughs> I started in 2013 and I was like in media res here. I definitely covered a couple filings in this, in I, this case. I and, do think that there's a high likelihood if anybody's worked here in the last decade, they've written at least one Apple Samsung Well, there was just so much. Like, it went on for seven years, it like did. we say. Anyway, so yes. Yeah, so... Uh, it actually, what you just said there, um, kind of, I want to make it clear here. We're cheating just a little. I mean, it wasn't just one trial and done. Yeah. It w- went up and down. There were tendrils and various avenues. 
this ongoing war included. I'm not going to um, call the podcast segment referee on you. I think. It, thanks, I, I appreciate it. I that. think it counts. But it, but it's important for people to know this was an, a really lengthy battle. Yes. So it included several trials, a trip all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then even some post-trial settlement to drop outstanding claims that remained after the final trial. So a lot of ping-ponging back and forth on this one. Um, just to tell people a little bit more about what happened. Apple and Samsung first went to trial in 2012. Apple won $1 billion in damages. With a B. Yeah. So the Supreme Court eventually got that before them. They vacated about $400 million of that a few years later. It was the first design patent case that that court had heard in 120 years. So it was a big <laughs> deal on every level. Huge numbers, huge companies, phones everybody owns, and the Supreme Court hadn't touched design patents in 120 yeah. years. I, I really wish I knew what the... What the, what the design patent was 120 oh, years ago. I should have looked that up. I bet it was something hilarious. We'll add it in the show notes. Um, yeah. So then there was a retrial um, in the spring of 2018, and that led to Apple being awarded $538 million for Samsung's design patent infringement. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so like, like you said, it went back and forth. There were big rewards that were then cut. You know, where what is – and these are big, big, important companies with, you know, foundational technology. Why – What's the big yeah, takeaway here? Was it our decade uh, winner yeah. in the business trial category? Yeah. yeah. So I know it's big numbers and big companies, but it's not just that. It's big impacts, too, about what's important for these companies. So a lot of people used to think design patents were just like, yeah, this nice extra thing you have. Yeah. Not as important as a utility patent, which covers the actual tech, not yeah. just like the look of how something's designed. So this case proved, without a doubt, Big money can be attached to design patents. Yeah. They're very important, especially in the tech world we live in now. So they're, they're something you really want to protect in your IP portfolio. And that was a, a bit of a sea change. Um, and then, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds of patents, but just a little, guys. So the way that the design patents um, are are considered, there's something called an article of manufacture. That's a term of art that comes from the actual design patent statute. And it says that a company selling an article of manufacture that infringes on a design patent has to pay its total profits and damages. Yeah. So the Supreme Court said that that article of manufacture doesn't necessarily have to be the whole product. It could be just a component. And that's okay. important when you're thinking about an iPhone where or, you know, a, a Samsung phone equivalent. Um, are they talking about the whole phone? Or are they talking about just a part? Because it can really change the calculation of what damages yeah, sure. people yes. get. And that's really important as more and more tech rolls out, how you parse out, do we have to talk about the whole thing, the end product, or just parts of it? Yeah. So when it actually went back down to a jury to apply that test, that it doesn't have to be the entire phone, mm -hmm. Doesn't seem like the jury really listened to that because they gave that giant verdict I mentioned earlier, the $530 million in damages. It seems pretty clear that they must have just thought, oh, it's the whole Samsung phone here. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see that continuing to play out in the tech sector where juries have to weigh and, and figure out what the design patents actually apply to when they're assessing damages. I know that sounds a little wonky, but it just has such big dollar implications and big implications in how tech's designed and put together that you really can't underestimate the impacts of this case. next segment, we're going to focus on the Supreme Court. Each of us has picked one of the most consequential decisions out of the decade. 
Bill, I think yours is up first. Yeah, we're going to start off with uh, the court's 2010 ruling in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. This Citizens United is for dec- end of decade Supreme Court lists what the social network is for end of decade movie lists. Wow, great. It came out in 2010. It's just under the wire and it's very important. Great analogy. Thank you. I It's one of my okay ones, I think. So if we don't remember it, uh, this was it was a First Amendment ruling and it struck down uh, federal restrictions on how corporations and other groups of people uh, spend money on politics. It, and it, I don't, I don't think that for any listeners of this show, we're going to need to sort of sell the stakes on it. It sparked all sorts of fears about unlimited money and dark money in politics. Um, and the impact and the propriety of this ruling is still being debated to this day. It was, uh, I think, mo- like, since like Roe v. Wade, I can't remember another uh, Supreme Court decision that gets like name checked in political speech. Yeah, I mean yeah, Bush v. Right. Gore, I guess. I but guess. like that obviously just sort of is speaks for itself in a certain way. That it just one, has it, it has a good name. It's like Citizens United. You and know? also this one's such a biggie. I feel like if you did like some man on the street thing and you were like, name a Supreme Court case, odds are you get at least a few people that said this one. Exactly. Yeah. So um, by a 5-4 vote, the court struck down pieces of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, um, the, specifically provisions that barred corporations and other groups from making what's known as independent expenditures um, for yeah. political communications. So to be clear, these aren't direct contributions to candidates or campaigns. They're It's money um, spent independently on ads or communications that support or denounce a candidate. That's the idea of this independent expenditures. Um, so the court said that spending is it's an important form of protected speech under the First Amendment and that the government can't simply ban that kind of speech because it's coming from a corporate rather than individual speaker. That was a thing that was later, you know, that was what you heard a lot about this ruling, that corporations are people and that corporations can speak in the same way that people can, which wasn't really as controversial a take as perhaps it was portrayed at the time. Um, But either way, um, so in, in 1990, this other ruling had come out and had upheld restrictions on, um, th- on had upheld similar restrictions on the grounds that the government had an interest in limiting, quote, the corrosive and distorting effects of the immense aggregations of wealth. Um, but this ruling specifically overturned that. And like I said, returned to an earlier set of, of, of case law that, um, that made that idea of corporation speaking not exactly the most controversial thing. But but the impacts of the ruling, regardless of whether or not you know it was this brand new uh, type of type of ruling, the impacts w- were pretty clear. Um, the 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 ruling and then several follow up rulings really enabled the arise of what have become known as super PACs, which yeah. everyone has likely heard of. Um, outside groups that can solicit as much money as they want from wealthy individuals and corporations, and then spend it to advocate for certain candidates. They can't coordinate with campaigns, but they can directly advocate on behalf of a campaign. They're not just saying, you know, we care about the environment or we care about whatever. They can support a candidate. Um, And so that's created a situation where very wealthy people can put their money into these PACs and then they can spend as as much as they want. Um, The super PACs themselves must must disclose their donors. Um, The court specifically said in Citizens United that some level of disclosure is not too much of a burden on on their First Amendment rights, yeah. but um, donors who want to use these systems, people have figured out ways to use other mechanisms of the tax code and all sorts of other things to 
hide the disclosures that are going hide the 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 names of donors to to these groups it's created all sorts of fears about you know i think people have heard the term dark money mm-hmm. right and that's just money that can't be traced back to the actual origin exactly um so you know there there's debate about whether there was already a rise in uh outside spending and and sort of untraceable money in politics leading up to this decision but no matter whether that's true or not this certainly led to um uh, a spike in that kind of money. We've seen huge, huge numbers of outside uh, donations coming in in the elections that have come out after the election. So um, we are, everyone will be aware that we are heading into another election season. We are so indeed. the impact of Citizens United will certainly be discussed more and um, we will see if, if how much of this outside money is flowing into politics. You know, mine also has a tie to the upcoming election because I want to talk about National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, otherwise known as the case about Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, this is another one that's important, though it doesn't get name-checked, because this is quite a mouthful to say. Yeah, so President Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law in 2010. I think we all remember it was very contentious. Um, and it's arguably the most impactful social safety net legislation since the New Deal. Definitely. So... Obamacare, in case you've forgotten, it aimed to increase the number of Americans just covered by health insurance, but it also had mechanisms that were trying to tamp down the overall cost of health care in America. The law is complicated. It's very long. But there's a few key things to remember for how these suits played out. One is that you can be insured privately, like most of us get it through our employer, but you can also now, under Obamacare, buy a policy through this Obamacare exchange. Mm -hmm. And if, and if you didn't have either your insurance through like your employer or buy from the exchange, you had to pay a penalty for not being insured. That's what they called the individual mandate. It meant that people had to get insurance. Yeah. Um, also, to make sure states took part in, in all of this, the ACA mandated that states had to expand coverage for people or they'd lose some key federal funding. Yeah, it was meant to be like it was like a punitive right. thing if you didn't if and, you didn't buy in. And this yeah. individual mandate is sort of the the centerpiece of the law. It creates a situation where the idea was that you had to force more people into the pool to dilute the risk and that would make insurers cover it. Yeah, you, know, you basically need enough young and healthy people in it to prop up the payouts that have to go to exactly. people that need the yeah. insurance. That's but that's just the general mechanics of how insurance always works. So Yeah. Now um, it's on a grand governmental scale. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the I mean, I, I think it seems a little silly to say this out loud, but to call Obamacare contentious is just an understatement. Yeah. I mean, it was it was hard to get it passed, and there were vocal opponents. Yeah, um, I mean, he used up like the entirety of the of the political capital the first right. like uh, first first term, really. So no surprise, it was basically immediately that twenty six states, uh, several individuals, and this National Federation of Independent Businesses sued to overturn the law. It was a super closely watched Supreme Court case, and it came out 5-4. So it had all the trappings of being very exciting yeah. when we were waiting for it, and, and it was such a, a close case. Uh, the court ruled the individual mandate was legitimate. That was okay, because in essence, it's a tax. Yeah. But the court struck down the provision that would withhold funds for states that didn't expand the program. So... If I can play, uh, media, sorry to interrupt you. If I can play media watchdog, I do recall that when this came out, CNN uh, sent out a, a, a false uh, alert that, they, that the law was struck down because it was really complicated, <laughs> was well, like, and, and they misread opinion, that, yeah. that that was went, a penalty tax. Or I whatever. went back to reread some stuff <laughs> in preparation for the show, and man, it really is complicated. Yeah. So I understand how that happened, and and but the individual mandate lived on. It did. They said it's a tax, and then so I mean. 
Well, you'd think N- that'd be no, the end of it, wouldn't you? No more controversy over this <laughs> Not piece of legislation, is there, Amber? Gosh, I mean, well, there was a subsequent Supreme Court case in 2015 that was over some consumer subsidies in yeah. the act. Those got upheld. And Republican members of Congress have tried, when I say repeatedly, I mean dozens and dozens of times to attempt uh, to overturn Obamacare. Yeah. So that continues a pace there that seems to crop up every so often where Republicans get the chance. Yeah, they were mostly symbolic votes when the Democrats held the Senate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they would it would be like every other week, like accompanying some funding symbolic bill. Symbolic or not, I think it just shows that if if they had the levers of power to do it, they would definitely try to overturn this entire law. No, definitely, yeah. Um, and currently, there's a case brought by Republican state attorneys general that is supported by the Trump administration that's looking to completely invalidate the right. uh, the Obamacare. And that's actually made it to the Fifth Circuit. There have been oral arguments in that one. It seemed like the Fifth Circuit might buy into to gutting the law. And if they do that, it's likely to just go back to the Supreme Court again. So it's good to get this uh, recap of what's happened and gotten us to here because it's not the end of the challenges for the, um, the Obamacare law. Probably the Supreme Court ruling from this past decade that has the sort of, uh, you know, most most human application that was like it really it really, um, you know, generated interest, not from people who were like, you know, really into the weeds of legal technocracy or anything, but an impact on people's daily lives was Obergefell v. Hodges from 2015. We know this better as the decision that legalized same sex marriage throughout the land gave a huge lift to. LGBTQ advocates that were sort of fighting these incremental battles in the court um, that went up to the Supreme Court that we'll also talk about. But this was really the sort of this is the the coalescing of all those efforts um, to uh, to legalize gay marriage. Uh, the court. Uh, this is basically just to sort of reorient us on the facts of the case. Obergefell was a it was a consolidation of more than a dozen challenges. Uh, from various couples from Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, and Tennessee challenging all of those states' respective same-sex marriage bans, and it sort of aimed to, it, it, it looked to take sort of one fell swoop at all of this patchwork of uneven marriage protection laws and just legalize it. And what's, what's the argument for why that, for the why that was? Yes, the argument is that basically states' refusal to recognize same-sex marriages violates the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. It's a pretty, uh, we've, both of you have laid out very complex technical legal cases. This was pretty simple. The 14th Amendment provides for due process and equal protection. They're saying if the states are recognizing um, heterosexual marriages, not homosexual marriages. This is a this is a violation of that. It's right. a simple question, but this one also came down five four. It was a tight um, decision there, uh, very ide- ideological, as everyone would imagine. Yes, yeah, they they, they voted along uh, ideological. There were sort of relative ideological lines, um, save for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, who sided with his more liberal colleagues to write the majority opinion. Um, And in the process, I hope you guys will indulge me. It's a pretty long quote, but this is, I mean, for my money, I mean, one of the most iconic pieces of legal writing from the past 10 years. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law, 
the Constitution grants them that right. And if you're like me, and you went to a lot of weddings in the summer and fall yes. of 2015, this got read at a, <laughs> a lot of lot. weddings, and with good reason. Uh, yeah, uh, it really is um, some some lovely writing. I never thought of Kennedy as much of a writer, to be honest. And then he, he just like hits you with this smoke on the black. Uh, in any case, uh, there were dissents. Uh, from the conservative wing of the court, as I said, uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, and Antonin Scalia were sort of the most vocal, um, not opposing the issue in an ideological way um, or saying that or saying that legalizing gay marriage is bad policy, but it's just the idea that you are overreading the protections of the 14th Amendment. It doesn't speak to marriage protection. This is an issue for the states to decide on their own, as they have throughout the history of the country. So they objected to it on those grounds. Um but as I said, I mean, I think the impact is pretty clear sure. uh, here. Uh, this was, I mean, a long fight in the LGBTQ advocacy movement, um, and it crested here, but it did not stand alone. There were uh, a number of cases. The first domino to fall in this regard actually came before this decade in 2003 when the court uh, in uh, Lawrence v. Texas struck down Texas's sodomy law, which, like, criminalized homosexual behavior. Um, in 2013, there were actually two, I forgot about this, there were two two decisions that came down on the same day. Uh, the first was um, uh, US v. Windsor, which struck down the Defense of Marriage Act's uh, right. definition of, of marriage as between a man and a woman. And this basically denied federal protection, even for couples who's, whose marriages had been recognized by the state. Yeah. It was brought by a woman um, who her wife died and they lived in New York at the time and New York recognized gay marriage. Um, but they, w- they, the federal government would not extend to her uh, tax, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, preferential tax treatment to spouses who survive, uh, surviving spouses, uh, c- citing DOMA. So that struck that down. Uh, also, there was Hollingsworth v. Perry, which ruled that California's Prop 8, which amended the state's constitution to define marriage between a man and a woman, was unconstitutional. Um, so, yeah, and like I say, it all kind of coalesced with Obergefell, made it, uh, you know, there, there were questions about how how bold they would go, whether they would you know, issue a a ruling that wide, and they did. And now, you know, I mean, that was a very, it's very, very important decision. And now the sort of that, the LGBTQ movement has, has, you know, set its goals. Um, I don't don't know if we'd say higher, but they have moved on in advance. They are arguing a Title VII employment discrimination case before the court now. Um, And that is just going to sort of be the next, the next step in this, in this long march to justice for, uh, for this group of people. Okay, guys. Well, I feel like we're coming up on hour six of the podcast. We've <laughs> we've we've eclipsed the Irishman as, uh, as I the ab- longest piece of holiday content. So. I objected to doing the decade end show as a decade long podcast, but apparently I was overruled. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I would like you guys both to commit to working with me on the Per Se podcast for the next full decade. <sighs> I don't know if I can sign that paper Ooh. right here, but I'm feeling the love in I'll, this room as we head to the. I'll holidays. definitely show up tomorrow. I'll give you that much. <laughs> okay, um, this is something. I do want to let our listeners know before we go um, that we're going to be off for two weeks the holiday week and then the very first week of January but we'll see you guys back after that and um, we'll get right back to the legal news and I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention as we always do that uh, so much of our stuff comes from the work that our reporters and our editors and everybody here at Law360 does so um, you know a lot of stuff we were pulling for this show was coming from stories that were written in like 2011, which yeah, is fun years to go ago. back through. Yeah, yeah. So thanks to everybody that helps us out with with all of the great content, and it's also great working with you guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next year. And thanks, Alex. See you again next decade. We also want to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. 
Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you like Pro Se, please go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. For more information about anything we've talked about today, going back a whole decade, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here in January.